This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in the world football, but brings you insight and analysis of the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. Today it's everybody's favourite podcast, your questions answered. And we go right away with the first one. This is a classic question that we get on a general basis just nothing to do with football, but, but why is Duncan bald? This is from the Night King. <laughs> now, you'll find the answer in a fine documentary about the X-Men. Professor X tells his story. That's exactly what happened to Duncan. Duncan, do you care to comment on these rumours? Uh, I, I don't want, I don't watch the X-Men, so I have no idea what you're talking to. But um, in answer to that question, what, I, I think I'll quote Sean Connery. Why does the sun come up or are the stars just pinpricks in the curtain of night? <laughs> Beautiful there, Donkey. Absolutely. Poetic. Nothing more needs to be said on this matter, does it? Okay, we're going to go straight into a question from Abby Hilton. Um, she's asked, What is your opinion on Guardiola's not so subtle critique of Man City fans? Duncan. Well, it's not the first time we've heard Pep Guardiola complaining about the Manchester City fans. So this is uh, a repeated. Um, gripe of his and um and it's something that clearly annoys him a great deal i think if you if you've read those quotes and they're extensive um asking whether manchester city fans really want to be in the semi-final of the champions league and calling on them to play their part against tottenham hotspur tonight i would recommend actually going and watching the video of the press conference and just seeing how um irascible and angry um, Guardiola appears when he's talking about it, how he brings up the subject um, by himself and then carries on talking about it and keeps pushing that button about um, do they really want to be in a semi-final. So it's something that clearly is very important to him and he feels disadvantages him in this competition. But, I mean, really, it's I find it pathetic, a bit pathetic, to be honest. Um, he is in charge of uh, the most expensive uh, squad in the history of the game. Um, he's had uh, 692 million euros of transfer fee commitment spent on him since he got to that club for players. The current squad is worth just short of a billion euros in terms of... Um, cost of, of transfer fees to put together. They're miles ahead of any of their opponents. No manager in the history of football has ever had the advantages he has had in terms of having an, an entire club redesigned around him. Um, a chief executive brought in with the idea of trying to lure him in uh, and, and hire him as manager. Same with the director of football, uh, the academy structure, the training ground. The whole setup of the club has been designed around Pep Guardiola. 
Um, yes, Abu Dhabi expecting to win the Champions League, and, and rightly so, because they've spent more money on trying to win the Champions League than, than any um, country ownership uh, club has ever done before. Um, so to blame the supporters um, and to suggest that the reason um, he's failed in, in previous seasons and gone out to Monaco and Liverpool far inferior squads is because they don't get enough support uh, at the ground. It's really just, uh, for me, it's an indication of a man who's used to having everything he, he, he wants um, and having everything provided for him, having the best of players, having the best training ground, having um, complete support from uh, his employers. Um, and it, it's just just a little bit sad, I think. And I think also it's, he's, he's a bit out of touch with reality in the sense that one of the reasons he chose Manchester City as a club was because he, um, he, he knew he'd have that degree of support and he knew they hadn't won the Champions League before and he knew that if he won the Champions League there, it would be perceived as a great success. Also, they hadn't won many Premier Leagues, so um, winning the Premier League would be perceived as a great success. He had the opportunity to go to establish clubs with huge supports, such as Manchester United. He had basically had his pick of any club in England, um, should he have wanted to go and manage there. He chose deliberately to go to Manchester City for the reasons I've outlined. He can't expect, if he picks a club that doesn't have the same uh, depth of support because they don't have the same history of success in English football, uh, for that to magically appear because the owners have lots of money. Um, Manchester City have got a very dedicated fan base. They've got a, a a historic established fan base who who are who have a history of, of supporting their club well, but it's not large in English terms and certainly not in global terms because they haven't won they hadn't won major trophies for for many years before Abu Dhabi took control. Therefore they don't have that size of support. They've also built their stadium bigger than it realistically should be for that degree of core support. On top of that they charge the fans a lot of money for tickets. They've pushed ticket prices up a great deal since they, they took control of the club. So they've actually stretched the market um, for those tickets. Obviously, they do that to try and help um, pass FFP, uh, which is a, another discussion entirely. Um, but as with most English clubs, when you buy a season ticket for Manchester City, what you get are the league games. Uh, guaranteed, and you have to pay extra on top for the cup matches. And as a result, um, Manchester City fans won't necessarily fill the stadium when they play Champions League matches. So all of these things come together, um, and I don't think Guardiola does himself any favours or does Manchester City as a club any favours when he goes into press conferences before a key Champions League game, having not performed to his best in the first leg of that time, putting them at a one-goal disadvantage, um, to choose uh, the uh, role of the fans as being the important thing um, or an important thing in determining whether the club will make it to the next round or not. I take on board everything that Douglas has said, um, which is, I think, uh, accurate and correct. And I would say, um, put yourself in Pep Guardiola's shoes. Um, he does have the best squad probably in world football. Um, the most expensively assembled as well. He has won the League Cup. He's in the FA Cup final. He has um, 
Two points by Liverpool with a game in hand for the Premier League title to defend it for the first time. And um, he's in Champions League quarter-final, which they are trailing Spurs by one goal to nil, but have home advantage. So, who are you going to blame if things go wrong? And I think he's a clever man. Therefore, he's seen an opportunity to say, well, maybe you know we don't get the support that we need or deserve in European competitions because historically... Manchester City fans, who are a fan base, um, which is traditional and historic, unlike Manchester United, who have fans all over the world and all over the UK as well, but they have fans who um, have, um, in the past and and currently, will um, protest against UEFA, what they see as victimisation of them because of spending under the current Abu Dhabi regime. Um, with regards to FFP, etc., etc., they boo the Champions League anthem when uh, it's played at the Etihad Stadium. Now, is it a good idea to blame the fans? I don't think it is in this case because um, you're the manager of one of the biggest clubs in the world and you have all the advantages which go with that and you need the fans on side. But if you compare Guardiola to other managers who... If you like, ultimately play up to the fans. Um, think about Rafa Benitez in his entire career, but specifically in England with Liverpool and with now with Newcastle, where he will always, always praise the fans, get them on side, because he feels like um, if he does that, then it makes him much harder to criticise from the board's point of view um, and also externally as well in the media. Um, so. I think Guardiola is misguided here in terms of the way that he has addressed this issue. Um, as I said, it's like almost like he's, he's forging uh, an excuse which isn't there. And um, in doing so, putting himself, I think, up for criticism because he cannot you know, possibly win this particular um, competition of popularity between Man City, the fan base, and what Man City may, may or may not think of UEFA. It just seems really weird to me that he would um, have such a diverse view compared to the rest of football, uh, and, and especially the Champions League, which is the competition which the Abu Dhabi owners want him to win more than anything else. Is there a sense, Duncan, that Guardiola has lost touch with the fact that this Man City club is not the same kind of club as he had when he was at Barcelona or Bayern Munich, where he was in charge of a club that was essentially European aristocracy. City need to build that, don't they? Obviously, they need to build that. And um, the hardest thing, I think, in, in European competition is winning that first uh, European Cup. Um, you have to prove that you have the ability to do it in the very biggest of games. You have to have that belief. And um, I think it helps when you have experience amongst your players of, of doing that before. And, and, you know, Pep Guardiola is well aware of that. Pep Guardiola wanted to sign Danny Alves um, as one of that um, rash of fullbacks he brought in for his second season. And he didn't just want to sign Danny Alves because he was the, the top um, right back in in world football, it was because Danny Alves had won more titles 
than any other professional footballer in the game. Uh, and he knew the, the man's character and he knew his ability to lead a dressing room and to um, convey messages to his teammates and do things on the pitch in key moments of key matches when it really counted that could make the difference uh, between going through a quarterfinal of Champions League and, and getting to the final. Um, and you know, all the top managers will tell you the same thing, that, that in the Champions League, the level is so high, um, the, level, the quality of the players is so high, the quality of the coaching is so good, that a lot of the games come down to small details. It, it's, it's not quite luck, but it's how often it's how something breaks on the night in a particular fashion, a referee's decision or um, someone making a choice on the ball that's the correct choice or the wrong choice. And those small details, an element of it, a big element of it is psychology, experience, um, application of, of what you have learned as a footballer elsewhere. So Manchester City, it is harder for them because they haven't been there before. Um, but this is Guardiola's choice to go to uh, Manchester City. As I say, he could have gone to any club he wanted and he liked the advantages. And, and most tellingly, I think, and this was explained to me um, when I wrote the story, um, you know, it was more than half a year, I think, before Guardiola was actually formally appointed as uh, Manchester City man. He was briefed to me um, by people close to Guardiola that one of the reasons he'd chosen Manchester City was because there was less expectation there. Because if he won the Champions League with City, he would be the hero. Because um, it had never been done before. And as I say, he's just got to take the, the, the rough, and there's very little rough when it comes to Manchester City at present. Maybe they'll be rough next year if UEFA do what many people are asking them to do and kick them out of the Champions League for their you know, multiple transgressions of financial fair play rules. But essentially, he's had almost everything a manager could ask for. And I would say quite clearly been better supported than any manager in the history of football by these um, employers. So um, the fact that he doesn't have as big a, a, a support or as noisy a support in, in home games as some other clubs do, he's just got to live with it and, uh, and use what what um, resources he's been provided with and his talents as a manager to overcome those little difficulties. I mean, last night we watched Ajax Amsterdam um, knock out Juventus uh, from the Champions League away from home, having knocked out Real Madrid in the previous round away from home with two stellar um, football performances on an absolute minute fraction of the budget of those two clubs. So if Ajax can overcome um, their um, manifest and obvious disadvantages and get to the semi-final of the Champions League, Pep Guardiola should be able to get to the semi-final of the Champions League, whether his fans boo the uh, Champions League anthem at the start of the game or don't shout as loud as he'd like them to tonight. Okay, well, we're going to move on now to a question. I'm going to try and pronounce this, guys. I know my pronunciation isn't always the best. You might have noticed. Gabagul Gabagoff has said, will the Glazers sell if they miss Champions League two years in a row? Ian, what do you think? I don't think it's as it's, it's straightforward as that, Johnny, to be honest. Um, what we've learned, I think, from the last um, two to three years 
uh, of Manchester United's financial performance is that um, the Glazers realise they have in their hands a very lucrative and potentially more lucrative as um, things go on um, business that they can rely upon to pay dividends to them as a family, which has been a source of much contention amongst Manchester United fans. But also um, the fact that, um, and as you know, one of the few sort of um, sobering things that Louis van Gaal has said in the last five years, uh, this is a commercial club, not a football club. And what's been the case with um, Ed Woodward, uh, who's background is in investment banking is that um, as long as Manchester United perform well in the stock market then what happens on the football field is probably not as of much importance um, however in any business um, as long as the uh, core uh, part of the financial aspect of that business is healthy and doing well then it is potentially up for sale. Now, let's be realistic about this. Champions League football brings in around thirty million pounds extra revenue per year on average, depending on how far you go. That's um, dependent on obviously where you finish in the competition, but also um, the television uh, <clears throat> rights with regards to um, how many times you appear and. Uh, you know, what your audience uh, intake is. So, uh, United is, as a, as a club, is effectively always up for sale because the Glazers want to um, cash in at some point. Um, their market capitalization value has peaked in the last seven months at around $4 billion, um, which makes them one of the most lucrative um, assets in business of sport but at the same time um, you've got loans which um, have been taken out and need to be repaid so anyone taking on Manchester United as a business has to take that into account but you also have the amortisation effect of future earnings and uh, many sport franchises make um, money from uh, effectively loaning uh, money to them in the short term on the basis that they have uh, a guaranteed income in the long term, whether that's from broadcasting rights, marketing, obviously even just as much as season tickets as it turns out. So um, I doubt that um, Champions League qualification is a, is a massive influence on whether or not it is up for sale um, and whether Glazers would panic and, and, and put the club officially on the market. What we know from experience is that um, clubs at Manchester United uh, do not um, put themselves publicly. Uh, it's, like, it's not like we sell a house and you put a sign outside your house and say for sale. This doesn't happen. It happens very, very privately in um, closeted rooms in um, small places, usually airports. Um, <laughs> they have uh, function rooms where um, people meet and discuss whether or not the terms are right. Uh, to buy or sell a football club. Um, at this moment in time, I'm not aware that anyone is having those meetings. Um, but at the same time, as I said, uh, the Glazers will always be open to offers. Um, but the offer would have to be substantial 
and above four million dollars for them to four billion dollars, I should say, um, for them to even consider selling. There's only two ways Manchester United can change hands. One is if the Glazers were to put the club completely on the stock market, um, handing over voting rights shares as opposed to just um, uh, dividend rights shares as, as they've done so far, uh, and seeing what the, what the, the general public and or um, investment companies uh, value the club as and whether they want to buy it uh, bit by bit that way. The other is to sell to an extremely rich individual or um, more likely, I think, nation state um, and, and the obvious candidate here is Saudi Arabia, which is interested in following the Qatar Abu Dhabi model of buying a prominent um, European football club investing heavily in it and um, taking the reflected glory um, from uh, from that ownership. Um, and they have, the Saudi Arabia has a direct connection with the Glazer family. The Glazers have spent quite a lot of time in Saudi Arabia recently. There have been discussions about purchase. Um, these have been affected by the political situation, embarrassments that have fallen upon the, the Saudi state after um, extrajudicial killing and in Turkey of uh, one of their citizens, but it's a possibility that uh, they would come back in and make that serious. In terms of what Ian's talking about, um, if you don't go down that public route, there's a very limited number of people who have the resources to buy a club, so you don't need to put the thing on the market, you just go and sound those individuals out, find out if they're um, if they are prepared to meet your asking price, which I think would be in excess of £4 million. That's what the Glazers would be looking at. In terms of Champions League, um, they can afford not to be in the Champions League, still make profits, still take uh, large amounts of money out of the club every season, which is what the Glazers are in this for financial gain. They take a lot of money each year out of it. I was actually looking at... Um, director's payments in the Premier League uh, this morning um, to see who the highest uh, paid chief executive was. That is um, Ed Woodward. But more interestingly, I, I saw that uh, on the last accounts that Manchester United declared, their, their total payments to directors um, as salary um, were £12.9 uh, million, pounds, which is a huge amount to be paying um, an executive board of a club, um, most of whom aren't uh, particularly involved in the day-to-day -day running of the club. So it tells you again um, how much Manchester United is about uh, putting money into uh, the pockets of their owners um, and where their focus is. I think an element that could be relevant here in terms of whether the Glazers will decide that it's time to sell the club and whether it's it's more valuable for them to take a huge cash sum that would be an offer from somewhere like Saudi Arabia, as opposed to holding on to the shares and, and taking money out each year as, as they do at present, is um, where their commercial rights are going. Interestingly, because Manchester United have been so successful in the field of commercial rights, and, and, and one of the reasons why Woodward has been promoted to that, that role of, of running the entire club is that um, their, their commercial revenues basically flatlined over the last few years. 
um, the increases in revenue for the club have been coming from broadcast revenue from getting back in the Champions League as they did um, and a little bit of match day but uh, they're not succeeding in the commercial domain. If that carries on, I would expect that to be an influence in the Glazers' decision because if they, if they see that um, the only revenue stream that increases down the line is broadcast, then the, the multiple they would be looking on um, the value of their holding to sell, um, basically the multiple and, and potential future profits should go down and they should be more, more open to selling the club. Is that surprising, given that success breeds success? You know, people want to strut about the high street with their Cristiano Ronaldo top on because he's won the last three European Cups. So Real Madrid get the benefit of that when he was Real Madrid. Because United have had a period of uh, foulness, given their lack of trophies since Ferguson left, um, surely one follows the other. I mean, the Glazers surely have to be cognizant of that in the long term. Are they? Well, it could be. It could be that their assessment is that the commercial revenues haven't increased because they haven't had so much success on the field since Sir Alex Ferguson left. I don't know. I don't know what their thinking is internally on that. Certainly, if you look at what Ed Woodward has said, um, I think he's on record as saying it doesn't matter what happens on the pitch in terms of our financial results. So um, they, they have been... Look, they, they turn over a bigger operating profit. You know, once you strip out tax and debt, and obviously the debt with which the, the Glazers bought the club is still saddled to the club. So a lot of their operating profit goes to financing that debt each year. But they make more operating profit than any other club in the world by a huge margin. Um, it's how you use that money, I think, is the key thing here. If they were, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're a long-term uh, buy and hold investor and they feel that they need to improve uh, on the pitch to increase the value of their asset, then they need to change the way they're working. They need to change the structure of the club. Um, they need to get uh, Ed Woodward out of the decision-making position when it comes to contracts and managers uh, and director of football, which he keeps saying he wants to appoint but doesn't actually appoint as they go into another crucial window and you, you see the league winner Solskjaer last night um, again talking about the mess the squad is in and how long it's going to take to rebuild. Um, they need to get that side sorted and as long as they have the current structure, um, executive structure at the club, it's not going to be sorted. Um, so that's the decision the Glazers have, have got to make. Do they keep faith in Ed Woodward, the man who helped them buy the club in the first place? Or do they decide to move him to the side and put someone else in charge of football decisions, the key decisions in terms of hiring, structuring, um, building support for a manager, um, uh, placing the priorities on um, club ethos and structure as opposed to um, meeting the uh, egotistical demands of some of the players who they decided are of great commercial value to the club, getting that balance right so that the, that huge amount of resource that Manchester United have to spend is efficiently used um, to produce a good football team on the field. Because they're kidding themselves if they think they're anywhere near challenging for a Premier League title at the moment. And they're kidding themselves if, that's, if they think that squad needs just minor changes to become 
challengers for a Premier League title or challengers for the Champions League. They're miles away from it. And also briefly, we should dispel this myth, Johnny, that um, somehow um, ship sales um, justify players' uh, transfer uh, value stroke wages. That's not the case. Um, most clubs... Uh, in terms of the um, profit they make from shirts sold with a particular player's name on is less than 10%. And in fact, the reason that um, sports companies invest in football clubs is not because of the value of the shirt sales to them, but actually the value of the boot sales in which they have a much higher profit margin. So if you want um, to make money from... Uh, investing in a football club. It's not because the, the Ronaldo, for instance, on the back of his, the, the Juventus shirt or the Real Madrid shirt makes you money. It's because the value of the boot sales, in this case Nike for Ronaldo, um, that will actually make you the money because, people, because the kids want to have the same boots as Cristiano Ronaldo have. So it's not really uh, a, a kind of equitable um, share, if you like, of what the commercial profit can or can't be, um, the, the shirt sales themselves are very, very um, uh, limited with regards to profit margin. The boy's giving me a bit of a spank in there. I just have to take that. I'd also <laughs> like to point out, Ian, that it's not just the kids that like to have the same boots as Cristiano Ronaldo. I've got a very nice pair of what I would call Adidas Preds oh. that are bright, bright red. <laughs> <laughs> and white and blue and showcase my qualities my dancing feet if you will can we have a video yeah, I, please, please give us a video, please give us a video. Yeah. on the transfer podcast twitter feed as soon as possible I, I wouldn't want to embarrass you with my skill gentlemen anyway moving well, well, swiftly well, on you, you say embarrass <laughs> I, I'm thinking there might be a different predication there yeah, I'm forgetting I'm talking to a man who put a penalty past a European Cup winner. Exactly. Um, anyway, we're going to move on before I get pushed on this evidence, Lark. Right, from Sanji Turani, a question now. He says, from your experience of interacting with fans, what are the biggest misconceptions that are held by most people in regards to how transfers work, especially at the highest level? Duncan, give us your take. Um, I think it's a lot more complicated than than people think on the surface. Um, I think there's a kind of, as a, as someone who used to play the game myself, um, football manager mentality of of you. You know, you have your budget. You decide which player you want. You put the money down, and the club agrees, and and you get them. It's uh, so much more complicated. And you know, interestingly. It, t- it can take top executives in football years to understand the process. And, and one of the reasons why clubs succeed or fail is because they're either good at or not good at um, setting up deals in advance. You know, if you want to, basically, if you want to buy a top player, a really top player these days, you don't go anywhere near his club until the very last minute. You do everything with the player the players' representatives, to find out if he wants to come to your club, then to sell your club to him, to get the financial aspects in place uh, long before you ever make a transfer bid, um, to 
to see if you can afford to do it, see if the financial terms suit you, um, and get a commitment from their side that they will join. And then you, you work on um, on the club that you want to buy them from. Uh, and, you know, you, you probably do that behind the scenes um, in the first place and sound the club out and find out whether they're prepared to, to sell. Um, I think it, essentially it's just a far more in-depth process um, than, than people think. So you, you quite often see fans drawing up a list of this is these are the five players that Manchester United um, or Chelsea need uh, to turn them into uh, contenders again. And um, it's the, the reality of actually putting that into effect uh, when you consider the competition um, uh, that everyone else in the, in the market with the same resources um, is chasing the same players. It, it's, it's so different um, from what it seems on the surface um, to how things actually happen. Um, I, think, uh, I think people are not aware of how important agents are in the process also. I, I, I still see a lot of um, uh, cynicism and aggression um, towards agents in terms of them being a sort of parasitical element in the game. Um, who just extract large amounts of cash from clubs um, for, uh, in inverted commas, doing nothing. Actually, these guys are fundamental players. And if you want to be a successful football club, you have to have relations with, with top agents um, to get them to help you facilitate the deals um, and convince their players that, uh, that, that the right place for their, them to further their career is at your club. Um, so, I mean, there, there's some of the elements, but I think the, the essential thing is it's, um, it's probably not everyone understands the complexities of the, of the transfer market. I think that, that would be the, the number one point. It's also the case as well. I think there's, there's two kinds of transfer. Um, there's the no-brainer transfer, which is if you are a player at a non-elite level club and Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, Bars, uh, Bayern Munich want you, then clearly you're going to be interested in moving there. However, it gets a lot more complex um, under that level where um, you've got competing clubs who are, let's just say, um, of a equal um, stature who want you to become part of their squad, part of their plan, etc. Et and we're talking about clubs like, I don't know, Everton, Watford, uh, Borussia Dortmund, um, Atletico Madrid, whereby you ha you're forced as a player to make a decision about how your career will better blossom um, based on which club you choose. And um, I think Duncan's right. I think the, the role of the agent is very underplayed in this. Um, as well as the role of families, because football players are, are fairly kind of um, simple creatures in terms of they, they know what they want to do, and that is they want to play football, and they want to play at the best level they can, but they want to play. So moving to a club where, like an elite-level club, where they're not going to be first choice, isn't always the obvious attraction. In fact, it can be a distraction instead. And therefore, 
um, they have to think about what the financial gain is compared to the sporting gain. Uh, and in doing so, um, make a decision based on what's best for them at that stage in their career, uh, at that stage um, as well in terms of what the financial situation is, et cetera, et cetera. And agents and families play a huge part in this because in my experience, um, players will be very, very influenced by um, their representatives and also in some cases by family members, which we've discussed in other um, episodes of the Transfer Window podcast. So in a situation um, whereby you've got a choice to make um, between certain clubs, if the clubs are of, of equal stature, then you will probably do it based on um, coach uh, and their confidence in you. But whether it's um, between an elite club and a lesser club where you're going to play more, then you have to make a sporting choice because your financial gain will be less um, and therefore the influence of your agent and or family members will be greater because they have to think about your career, especially, as I said, if you're, if you're a player under the age of 25 where you want to actually go out and play football and better yourself and, and, and effectively give yourself the opportunity to move again at, 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 at a later period in your life. Um, to an elite club so it's one of those things whereby it's, it's not as simple as it seems if a club comes in for you and you think oh great they're going to give me 10 20 grand a week more well that's not always going to be the case that it's beneficial to you to get that financial gain because if the club itself is not in a good, good position or indeed the coach isn't going to you know have confidence in you and play you then you should go somewhere else and Jaden Sancho um, who is obviously someone who's apparently much in demand back in England, having spurned a new contract at Manchester City, um, is, a, is a good example in terms of someone who has gone out and, and did the right thing for himself in terms of his career because he's played um, every game for British Dortmund and, uh, and taken a pay cut compared to what he would have been um, offered at Manchester City to send an extension on his contract there. So these things have all got to be taken in consideration um, when making a choice regarding what you're going to do in the future. But um, with regards to you know, the general aspect of, you know, is it as simple as it looks? Well, it's not. There are many, many, many complicated factors involved in, um, in any transfer. Let me, let me give you just one concrete example about a very prominent deal, and that's Gareth Bale to Real Madrid um, from Tottenham Hotspur. Um, if you remember that, that summer, it was a classic Real Madrid move. They made it clear that they wanted to sign Bale. Um, we spent the entire summer um, sort of reporting on what the price would be, how much Tottenham were, were expecting. They, they actually set their price very early on. I think I did a story for the Sunday Times saying they wanted $100 million for him. Um, Daniel Levy, assuming that that would place him out of reach of any of his suitors. No one would be prepared to pay that kind of money at the time. Um, Madrid eventually paid it, but after spending months trying to get him at a cheaper price, they eventually said, uh, we'll, we'll do what you want, and then started fussing over the, 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 the staging of the payments, what, how much would be paid first year, second, third year, etc. Manchester United wanted the player the whole time um, and waited and waited and waited till the last minute until that agreement came in with Tottenham, asked Tottenham to be uh, kept informed of what was going on. Tottenham, uh, Daniel Levy is very close to Edward Wood, 
said, right, we have come to an agreement. Um, we are going to sell them. And Woodward said, okay, we'll offer you more money um, and we'll also take um, Emmanuel Adebayor off your hands. Um, Adebayor was causing a lot of trouble at, at Tottenham at the time and they were trying to shift them out. So from Tottenham's perspective, it was a much better deal um, and they accepted it. Levy then said to Woodward, I'm told, um, you've, got the, you've got everything sorted out with, um, with Bale's side, yes? And uh, Woodward's response was, no, no, we'll do that now. So this is a great example of a lack of understanding of the transfer market from someone who was actually paid to take actions in the transfer market. Bale, obviously Madrid had done their homework with Bale for months, if not years, in advance finding out whether he wanted to club, go to the club, selling the prospect to him, settling on financial terms. They had it all in place, and then they tried to get the, the fee down with Tottenham. Manchester United also wanted the player, but did nothing with the player in advance to convince him that Manchester United was the right place for him to go to, sort out financial terms, etc. And it, it was too late. Even though they offered a better deal to Tottenham, even though Tottenham would liked Bale to have gone to Manchester United rather than Real Madrid, at that stage nothing could be done because Manchester United had put themselves so far behind the game that Bale w thought and felt he was going to Real Madrid. He knew Tottenham had accepted the deal, so he just had to um, keep put his foot down and say, no, I'm only going if I, if I go to Madrid, and, and that's what happened. And, you know, that's I think that demonstrates how complex the market is and also demonstrates how people in the market can take a long time to understand how complex the market is and how you need to do all the right things at the right times if you want to get the right players. And of course, Duncan, um, what Manchester United also failed to do was to offer him life membership at the local golf club, <laughs> which Real Madrid have already sorted out. Before we get into Duncan's seven iron, I think it's time to move <laughs> it on <laughs> for the to the donkeys, uh, the part of the show where I decide a category. Ian defies the nominations, and of course, Mr. Castles decides on who is to receive this much-desired award. So this week, it's the Chris Grayling Award for the worst decision to hand out a contract in football. This is, of course, a reference to our bungling transport secretary who famously handed out a ferry contract to a company with no experience of building ferries. So, Ian, if you'd like to tear open that envelope and get us started. So yes, here we are. We're uh, just tearing the envelope on, uh, open uh, on this particular um, nominations of the donkeys. And uh, I'm pleased to say that we have um, some very interesting Manchester United nominations and candidates for this one. The first one would be Ed Woodward um, for awarding a contract to Phil Jones, um, a man who seemed to disappear um, from all footballing aspects, but yet again um, is awarded uh, a, a long-term um, extension at Manchester United. The uh, second nomination will be to Ed Woodward, further enough, uh, for a man who has given a contract to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who on um, accepting the job as interim manager said that it's not rocket science it's just about getting good players to play and um, having now suffered um, elimination from the Champions League seems to have changed his mind and said that, in fact, uh, the rebuilding of the squad could take years. 
And the third nomination goes to Ed Woodward for uh, giving Alexis Sanchez a four-year contract at Manchester United on more money than any other player in the Premier League. Um, someone who um, has yet to justify probably um, the amount of money it takes to feed his dogs on a weekly basis rather than play football. So um, I'm going to hand over to Dunky now to um, dole out this uh, prestigious award. I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, we have a winner, but I'm not sure which, for which category it will be. Um, I'm, I'm tempted by Phil Jones, um, particularly um, after uh, recent performances, but I think I think he's bettered here um, by Solskjaer, um, the man who's now um, lost five of his last seven games in charge. I thought there was a, a, a beautiful comment on uh, Twitter last night, uh, very, very funny, that um, that Manchester United should sack Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as manager and appoint Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as caretaker manager, which just about sums up uh, where United are at the moment. But I think if we're talking about the most destructive of those contract decisions, then Edward Wood has to pick up his award for um, Alexis Sanchez. Uh, the richest contract in British football history um, and one that has been a subject of discussion, I believe, almost every day at Manchester United's training ground since it's uh, been handed out and has caused huge consternation amongst his fellow players, most notably um, with David De Gea, who uh, is justifiably asking to be paid on the same level as Sanchez as he's been the best, the club's best player. But um, that same Ed Woodward is telling me he won't be making that mistake again uh, and uh, it's in danger of, of losing him as a result of that Sanchez contract. So I think that's why uh, the donkey goes for Ed Woodward awarding Alexis Sanchez um, his supreme deal. Do we have a, a kind of um, a counting point for Edward Woodward's awards in this country? <laughs> that's, that's my question. It seems to me he's, he's, he's receiving these almost on a weekly basis. Well, we know that Daniel Day-Lewis has got three Oscars, the most best actor wins. <laughs> I, think he's, well, I, think, I think he's close to having more transfer window awards than he does um, legitimate <laughs> silverware. Actual, actual trophies. Yeah. <laughs> what we're saying is that Edward Woodward is the Daniel Day-Lewis of chief executives. If only that were true, Something like he'd, that. he'd probably be quite, quite, quite successful. Okay, <laughs> just before we go, it would be remiss of us not to get you, it would be remiss of me, should I say, not to get you guys on last night's events uh, in Turin. What an incredible Absolutely, performance yeah. that was by the young Ajax team, predicted by me, may I say. Hello, a couple of weeks back. Don't often get things right, but I did on this occasion. Um, outstanding. Duncan, were you impressed? Yeah, very impressed. Um, and uh, it's fascinating to see if they can go all the way um, because they have so much confidence and so much ability in that team and, and a tactical nouse about them um, that uh, you'd, you'd have to say they've got a chance against everyone um, now. Um, obviously, it's, as we were discussing earlier in the podcast, I went talked in some detail about experience of winning and uh, the difficulty of doing it um, at that level for the first time. It wouldn't be the first time for Ajax as a club, obviously, but it certainly be the first time um, for these players. Um, 
Uh, but if they can overcome that, um, I think uh, it would be the most outstanding um, Champions League win, certainly since uh, the Porto victory in 2004 um, and maybe even further back there. And I think a few people were making important points about um, European Super League off the back of that performance because um, the Juventus uh, president, Agnelli, has been very um, instrumental in the push from the leading European clubs to try and set up a Super League, which would guarantee uh, the same set of teams competing against each other in this competition time after time. And I can tell you Ajax would not be in that European Super League list and, and we're definitely going to miss out if we don't allow um, clubs who develop squads, even for a short, even if it's only for a short period of time, of this talent into the competition. Um, and I think we're going to lose out if we move away from this format because I don't think there's a better format in club football than the, uh, the knockout stages of the Champions League for, for sheer quality of games and, um, and drama. Here's a, a small anecdote which hopefully will um, be um, relevant. Right? Uh, in 1995, Ajax trained at Love Street, St Mirren's former stadium uh, in the Champions League um, match that they played uh, against Rangers. And um, I was fortunate enough to be there, along with some other journalists, but also more specifically some coaches um, who had decided to turn up and see exactly how this young team, which can, uh, could boast the likes of Frank Rijkaard, Patrick Cliver, um, as part of their um, setup, why they were so good. And um, one... Tommy Burns, um, who obviously was Celtic head coach at the time, remarked to me about the fact that when they played um, in a close, um, it was like, I think it was a six-side game, they had one player who wore a vest. And the player who wore the vest was the extra man on the team with possession. So they would switch possession between two teams and the team in possession of the ball would have an extra man in order to make the rest of the um, the opposition work harder. Louis van Gaal was the coach, we should also um, remember here. And um, they went on to win the Champions League that year in '95 against um, a mighty AC Milan side. Um, and since then have not won the Champions League since. So I feel that there's a, there's, there, there are parameters and there are, there are definitely... Um, uh, similarities in this young Ajax team compared to then because if you think about the players they, they went on to play in different clubs and uh, and won the European Cup more specifically with AC Milan actually funnily enough um, then this is one of those teams which is special um, and it is the case that a, a club with um, limited resources with um, a policy of having to sell players in order just to um, uh, keep abreast of themselves in uh, their own domestic league. Uh, they, they do this, but hopefully, hopefully, in eliminating both Real Madrid and Juventus, this is a team who can show that, once again, it is possible in the most difficult circumstances in terms of competing with European superpowers that you can actually win the Champions League because the last team to do that um, in my recollection, was um, FC Porto under Jose Mourinho in um, in 2004. So it would be great to see Ajax 
um, repeat that kind of um, achievement that they did in 95. Just very, very quickly, Duncan, before we go, the thing that struck me was Frankie de Jong. The fact he's already agreed a deal with Barcelona. Uh, I think it was 86 million euros there or thereabouts, um, that deal. Does that now look like one of the best bits, the most clever bits of transfer business that we've seen for some time? Look, a lot of clubs wanted to sign de Jong, which tells you um, how highly valued he is. Um, talking to people at Ajax about him, they have no doubts um, that he's got all the components to be a top player in European football for a decade to come. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But the, the, the signs are there with him, as they are with um, Matthias de Ligt, in, in terms of um, ability going forward. And, and if he does, then the price will look like a bargain because, as you know, as we've been saying in the transfer window um, of late, basically the, the, the starting price for any... Um, talented player who's established himself in a in a, one of the more prominent European leagues at present it seems to be 100 million euros um, and I think we're going to see clubs paying that we, we saw Bayern Munich um, deciding that they have to spend heavily this summer and paying 80 million euros for a centre-back stroke left-back so um, yeah I, I think they've done good business there um, just pour a little bit of cold water in the whole Ajax thing because we, you know, I see a lot of stuff about how this is the model for clubs going forward and you know, Manchester United fans saying that if we go back to the academy strategy then uh, we can be Manchester United again and have this kind of success in the European level. Um, it should be noted that Ajax haven't won the Dutch title since 2014 and they're not guaranteed to win it this year. They're currently level with PSV Eindhoven. So um, this kind of strategy obviously can produce an incredible football team uh, and it obviously works financially for Ajax no doubt about it but in terms of if you want to do that and have domestic success even in a league like the Netherlands where Ajax are the biggest club um, you're not guaranteed to get it so um, be, be careful I think before reading too many lessons into, into their success Okay, well, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. But fear not, we'll be back on Friday as usual to fulfil all your podcast needs. To continue the debate, you can catch up with us all on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Ian is at GarboSG. And Duncan is at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Friday... Thanks for listening.